Hey guys, I'm Abby and I'm Shauna and we're the host of a podcast called Anxious and Afraid. Do you love deep dives into true crime, the paranormal, strange history, conspiracies? Well, so do we and each week we take turns surprising each other with whatever anxiety inducing subject we are obsessed with that week. Tune in each week to hear Shauna mispronounce words. Um, the guys on the lookout apparently asked for binoculars. Did I say that right? So the photos showed him and his colleague entertaining. <laughs> Wait, am I saying <laughs> And listen in as Abby constantly asks too many questions. I was oh, about to ask you a lot of questions. And I'm glad that you interrupted me. Continue. <laughs> I would have told you to shut up. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what Stop I'm trying to Stop quizzing me. Do, okay? okay, you know, I did enough research. <laughs> Let me just tell the damn story. Jesus. Continue. Episodes drop every Tuesday, available wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also find us at our website, anxiousandafraid.com. We're always looking for new friends, so don't forget to rate and subscribe. Hey guys, welcome on back to State of Fear Podcast. I'm your host, Chris, and with me, as always, is my good friend, James. Man, I am glad to be back from the mountains. I mean, I love being up there, but I am glad to be back recording again. Vacation was awesome. Nice, dude. How's it going, everybody? Now, in case you guys didn't know, because uh, all of our episodes previously have included my friend James, uh, he was on vacation. Nice long vacation in the great state of Colorado. 19 days of glorious silence. Yeah. For those of you that don't follow us on social media, you didn't see any of his cool pictures. He went to the Alfred Packer site. He went and checked out his old uh, childhood home that was haunted. Yes, I did. Took some pictures, posted them. So you, if you're not following us, go follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Yeah. You see all those pics there. They were super cool. Did you have a great vacation? I had a fantastic time. I did a lot of work, though. I didn't do a lot of traveling, so to say. I did a lot of work on the house up there and stuff because it needs some things done to it. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, it was more of a work-slash-fun vacation. I mean, I'd have one day where I'd beat the heck out of myself. Right. Then I'd have a lazy day, watch a couple movies. Nice. Got internet put in my cabin, unfortunately, but, you know, <laughs> so be it. So the government but, uh, still track you, huh? The government, that's right. Damn. Uh, went and bought a nice... Uh, 50-inch Roku TV for nice. the house. And all I have is streaming services. I don't use, you know, I don't watch regular cable or we anything We don't have cable like either, yeah. So it's, it's all streaming. All man. stream services. All you need. So we're all set, man, nice, up there. Dude. It's great. So That's awesome. I, I wanted to get myself set up in case this lockdown stuff keeps going or whatever. 
because uh, eventually, if we get ahead of a few episodes or whatever, yeah. I may go hide in the mountains again for a couple of weeks and just work from up there because I've go. already tested all my work software and everything. Everything oh, nice. works great up there. So, oh man, I was very happy. That but is a I great am, place to work from. Oh man, absolutely. The view yeah. is fantastic, and I'm 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 just glad to be back here with you, brother. Glad I miss doing back. this, but yeah. man, let's let's roll with yeah, it. Yeah, man, glad to have you back. So, as we mentioned, um. You know, guys, go, we're available on, uh, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter. Go follow us uh, on there. You can see all the cool stuff that we post. Um, you can also find us anywhere that uh, podcasts are at. So go yes. give us a like. Um, send us a review. Send us a rating. Um, we would appreciate that. Absolutely, we would. Um, let us know what you think. Uh, also, I'm doing a little a uh, contest here, a little uh, review contest. So I found an old 1996 pack of X-Files postcards. So uh, anytime you guys give us a review, send me a pic showing that you sent you submitted a review, and then send me your address, and I will send you a X Files postcard. Excellente. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, so give us a review. You know, go go give us a like, give us a follow, share with your friends. You know, all that good stuff. And uh, yeah, man. So why don't we go ahead and get started with the uh, the episode? Huh? Indeed, the truth it's, is out there. It, <laughs> it is. So tonight's episode is episode twenty five. On the state of Missouri. Mizzou. Mizzou. Mo. M-O. And no, we are not covering the Momo, the Missouri Negative. Bigfoot, because that's been covered a thousand times. A thousand times. We're going to do something a little more interesting. And I, I actually, I had an idea originally, way back when we started this, this show for Missouri, I was going to cover the Rex McElroy killing. Yes. Um, because I'm a big fan of that. Uh, it's the one where um, he was the town bully. And everybody hated him, but he held an iron grip over the town. And during one particular day, in, the, in broad daylight, the town had a meeting to discuss what was going to happen to him. He shows up, drunk as hell, tells everybody that they're not going to get rid of him. He goes out, walks to his truck. They all follow him out. While that happens, at some point, somebody shoots him in the back of the truck, in the back of the head with a, with a, with a rifle. Nobody ever goes to jail. Nobody confesses. Nobody is investigated. No, it was kind of like the Bernie story from uh, Carthage, Texas. You know, that, yes. that uh, church director guy who shot that old woman. And him nuts. The yes. town actually stood up for him because she was a mean old hag. Yeah, and, and everybody liked Bernie. Yeah. It's also very reminiscent of Roadhouse. Well, yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so, and, and even to this day, to this day, uh, the cops have investigated it or anything like that because... They nope. probably hated him too. Yeah. So... <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's a fascinating story, fascinating true true crime story. But uh, in the last like three or four months, I've seen it pop up everywhere. So it's, well, you know, if everybody in town says I didn't see nothing, yeah, how are they going to do it? They I mean, can't place a witness or there's a documentary limited series on it too. So instead, we are going to go ahead and cover something else that happened in the great state of Missouri: uh, a suspected serial killer slash sexual predator, yeah, by the name of Robert J. Gross, whose name is very appropriate. Gross, who was not arrested on any of those charges and he actually was free and out harassing people for the better part of like four decades what a jackass yeah so we're gonna cover that but first why don't we go ahead and get into the weird news of the day let's do it
Man, that makes me feel important. I, I, I love that music, man. That's, That's awesome. All right, uh, James, what do you got for us today, buddy? Today's news story is a real interesting one. Title caught me right off the bat because... I know why. <laughs> that very last let me, word. Let me just read it out and yeah. you'll figure it out for yourself. The story is dated June 17th, 2020, and is titled, Balloon-like object in Japan sky sets Twitter afire with talk of UFOs and Godzilla. <laughs> Godzilla. I mean, right there. I mean, that's a winner right there. <laughs> Give me Godzilla anytime. And there is an actual neat photo of it uh, yeah, really that is. I will try to download, find it, and you can uh, post it to this and post it to the Again, social media, Facebook, Twitter, Absolutely. Instagram. Go follow us, follow us, follow us. Do it. Yeah, but yeah, I post it on there once the episode hits. So, all right. So, what is this? What What is Godzilla is coming back to Japan, huh? Yes. All right. What do we got going on? I don't know on? if you ever left, brother. I probably didn't. He just goes in the in the ocean and sleeps, right? Yeah, it's one That's of my right. favorite memes from uh, 2012. Okay. Was uh, I mean, this is a little back, but it was so funny. There was a picture of a Japanese island. Okay. Beautiful green. and But you know how everything was supposed to all go to hell on 2012? Yeah. Just, and it said, and it, that morning, there was a meme somebody put out, and I absolutely floored me. I died laughing. It says, meanwhile, off the coast of Japan, and there's a picture of Godzilla coming. <laughs> well, you it's, know, uh, Godzilla meme has, has crept up quite a bit this year with everything going on. Yeah. Um, and every, every time a new month, a month is getting ready to end, someone posts the Godzilla in the ocean meme and says, get ready for July or come in <laughs> August or something. Every single month, hey, yeah. It's Godzilla's like, my boy, though. I love Godzilla. I, love cannot, I cannot wait. For the Godzilla vs. Kong movie. <sighs> Super excited about that. Yes, Corona, go away so we can see the movie. Please. Or, or don't go away so that studios realize how much money they can make on VOD and we can watch that from home watch it from in the, the comfort of our house. And I have to spend $45 on, on food. Boom. That's right. <laughs> That's right. All right, sorry, go on. Here we go. Story is out of Tokyo. Where else? Of course, yeah. The appearance of a mysterious white object in the sky over northern Japan on Wednesday set social media ablaze with speculation ranging from UFOs to coronavirus and North Korean propaganda. Those North Koreans, man. What's coronavirus got to do with flying <laughs> it's, objects? It's over everything, dude. Uh, Go on. I guess. <laughs> Television footage taken in the northeastern city of Sendai showed a balloon-like object above a cross on which propellers seemed to be turning. Oh. Officials in the Sendai Weather Bureau said it had appeared near dawn and hung in the sky for hours, largely unmoving until obscured by clouds. Uh, why didn't they go look? Yeah, if it was there for hours, send some jets Helicopter, up. Yeah, something. Something, yeah. By afternoon, it was the third most trending topic on Japanese Twitter. Third? <laughs> okay, what were the first? I got to know what the first uh, two were. I don't know. With theories including UFOs and North Korean balloons used to drop leaflets. Propaganda stuff. Propaganda. Oh, yeah. One user said it could be spreading novel coronavirus, adding, this gives me a very bad feeling, as if Godzilla might suddenly oh, appear. Gosh. <laughs> ah, you know what? I'd take Godzilla over coronavirus any day. Yeah, I think I would too, actually, yeah. Bring it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pop- <laughs> popcorn Party. <laughs> this is the handle, I guess. Yeah. Popcorn Party 010 created a tongue-in-cheek mock-up of a London Times front page with the banner headline, Sendai Annihilated, A Nightmare Come True. <laughs> oh, man, nice. I hope it was a picture of Godzilla in full full radiation breath. Oh, I hope so, yeah. Doing his thing. Fighting Mecha Godzilla. There's no picture with this. I wish there was. Police could not be immediately reached for comment, and the Sendai government official, government 
government officials said inquiries were still proceeding with both the size of the object and its origin, as well as its function, which is undetermined. No move had been made to retrieve it as of late afternoon. Retrieve it? Hmm. I mean, it's, yeah, shoot it down. We have absolutely no idea what it is. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a balloon. No it looks like a balloon. Said a Weather Bureau spokesman, declining to give his name. <laughs> I ain't telling you. Hey, man, I ain't saying nothing. I don't know what it is. It may be some kind of weather monitoring equipment, but definitely isn't ours. Oh, man. It's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's probably along with those, uh, that whole 5G, um, uh, theory, it's just dropping coronavirus. I get to, you know, 5G and balloons, man. <laughs> who knows that? You know, those those aluminum streams? And yes, stuff? yes. The, the little jet streams. Oh, those jets going over. Those, <laughs> that's not a vapor trail. That's dropping <laughs> aluminum on the population. It's trying to cool the planet. Oh, duh. Yeah, well, I mean, the shortest story, but sweet. But yeah. Godzilla, like I said, won it for me. Godzilla for us is like Merle Haggard for what the suck. It always yes. gets to pass. Always gets to pass. <laughs> and if you don't, always gets if you don't know what that means... Go listen to our sister uh, podcast, What the Suck, and listen to the um, Hillbillies in a Haunted House oh, episode. Lord. Yes. You'll learn what, what, what it means to have a Merle Haggard pass. A Merle Haggard pass. That's, That's right. right. <laughs> All right, man. Let's get on to it. All right, buddy. Let's do it. Let's uh, head to the main story now. Yes, sir. So today's main story comes from one particular source. Um, it's a large, large uh, editorial piece. Not even editorial. It was a large investigative piece that was done in the Kansas City Star. Mm, okay. And if I mean large, I mean that this will probably be a two-parter. Huge. Yeah, because there's so much information on this particular guy, which is crazy because up until recently, I had never heard of him. Which is perfect. Because that is exactly what we're trying to do here. Exactly. We don't want to, like I said, we've said this many times. We don't want to go just mainstream and do all the mainstream popular stuff. We want to dig behind the scenes for those stories the stuff that, we, that are just as interesting, but not as well known, if known at all. Yeah. Like I said, we love to even surprise the residents of the states that we cover. Oh, yeah. And hear back from them saying, man, I've never heard that. Yeah. You know, I love that about it. All right, so the story was written by Ian Cummings, Glenn E. Rice, and Tony Rizzo. And it was written on October 28, 2018. When Kansas City firefighters rolled into the Northland apartment complex shortly before 6 a.m. that summer morning in 2016, they uncovered a grisly scene. It was a witness who saw flames eaten up a second-floor apartment where Ying Li, a 52-year-old woman, lived. Fires have been staged in several places inside the apartment, and Lee's body lay in, in the living room, decapitated. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why I act surprised. I mean, I it's just know what, this stuff happens in this country <laughs> all the time. Why, yeah. why am I acting surprised? <laughs> Please proceed. Yeah. Lee had been advertising herself online as a massage worker, police learned, a clue that would link her murder to a series of crimes that began in the 1960s. Homicide detectives suspected the killer was a man long known to the Homicide detectives suspected the killer was a man long known to police as an incredibly violent predator. 
Okay. See, I'm I'm already going to put two and two together here. Sorry. Okay. No good. Go she is a a massage worker, uh-huh, uh-huh. and he is a pervert. Yeah. So yeah, this was, sounds like he was going for that happy that, ending, the whole happy ending mm-hmm. thing. And, yeah. And he and he instead he went homicidal. On and her, I don't so. mean that in an offensive manner, but I'm thinking that's how he was. Well, yeah. I mean, the thing is, uh, she she advertised herself as a massage worker, and yeah. it was at her apartment. That's typically screams. Yeah. 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 Hello. Or, yeah. It's yep. it's like Craigslist. Yeah. It was not the first time they had connected him into a woman's death. Or, it was not the first time they had connected him to a woman's death or a suspicious fire. Yet he remained elusive for more than four decades, and as the smoke cleared that morning, he was still a free man. Good Lord. The story of Robert J. Gross begins in an era before DNA evidence at the dawn of FBI's profiling science. It traverses Kansas City's heyday of violence, bypasses the modernization of police forensic techniques, and deposits Gross deep into the 21st century with his worst crimes unpunished. Generations of survivors, victims' families, and flummox detectives, I like that word, flummox, you don't hear that often. Flummox. Flummox, are familiar with Gross's bloody trail of death and destruction. Women he encountered a generation ago are still terrified to speak with <clears throat> Women he encountered a generation ago are still terrified to speak of him. Gross, through an attorney, declined to comment for this particular story. For the first time, the star is revealing Gross's darkest secrets, presenting a full picture of the longtime serial murder suspect, his victims, and the prestigious efforts of police to catch a killer. It all started when he was only eight years old. Bob Gross burned a hole in the crotch of a neighborhood girl's underpants while she was wearing them. What an asshole. Eight years old, already off to a horrible start. You little bastard. The year was 1960, and the first mark against Gross would set down in a criminal record. The incident with neighbor girl was brought to the attention of Gross's parents, a mailman and a social security worker who both served in the military and brought a certain strictness to their Kansas City home. Gross's mother, in particular, played the role of disciplinarian. She could be tough, and Gross hated her. He soon got into more trouble as a teenager. He was suspected of window peeping, and he would twice be caught breaking into homes. Gross's first arrest came in 1965. Police caught him in a neighbor's home, masturbating in the bathroom while wearing the panties of a young girl who lived in the house. He was 13. Ugh. You know, I... I... You hear stories about this all the time, but it never gets any easier to listen to. It's just disgusting. It, it is it, to have to you have to be in that mindset. You just you don't want to be in that mindset, but it's like you have to actually to get into the story and and learn about the story. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to skew too far from the path, but I helped put a sexual predator in prison for life. Oh, good. So good. I got a little bit of justice there. A little justice. I won't go justice. into that right now, but yeah, we we roasted that bastard. Good. Two years later, he got caught again, sneaking into the home of a young mother who lived behind his parents near 61st Street and Tracy Avenue. The woman, recounting the story more than 50 years later, asked that her name not be published. Living in Colorado under a different name, she still fears Gross could harm her. In 1967, the young woman who recently moved into the house with her husband just before the birth of her first child. She said, I felt safe in that neighborhood. When the couple went to bed that night, they left the windows open. This is 67, you know, it's no, absolutely. a small town in Missouri. You feel safe. Always. Yeah. yeah. It, you never, you wouldn't lock your car. You don't lock your house. You know, everybody in that's the right. neighborhood. Yeah. And that's when people were generally good. Generally. But that sense of safety soon faded. They heard noises outside their bedroom window. Later, they suspected it was the teenage gross who lived in the basement of his parents' home just across their joining backyards. Damn basement dwellers. 
she said that could have been good window peeking if you were into that. She started noticing things out of place, coming home to find a cupboard open, a shade left up, or some money missing from the dining room buffet. It wasn't quite enough to call the police, but it bothered her. The girls finally got caught in the act one night when the young mother took her child to her parents' house while her husband was out of town. An alert neighbor saw lights going on and off in the house and called the police to report it. The woman's father grabbed his gun and they drove over just ahead of police. The young mother, waiting outside in the car, watched her father and the police storm into the house, lights going on in every window, followed by a commotion. <laughs> commotion. Yeah. Hold it, you little bastard. <laughs> they found Gross in the bathroom, this time wearing the woman's slip, garter, and hosiery. Oh, good God. This, this also sounds very similar to uh, BTK. <laughs> the woman watched officers Jeez. lead Gross out of the house, and even at 15, he was six feet tall, she remembers. Damn. It was the only time she ever saw him with her own eyes. She fainted in the car when she did. She said, I just lost it, and it scared me to death. The police took Gross to the station, but let him off the hook when his parents promised to get him psychological help. About a week after the incident, Gross's parents visited the young mother, crying and saying Gross was a good boy. She remembers him saying, he played basketball. He went to mass every Sunday, went to a periodical school. Something was wrong. He wasn't like that. They said he had never done anything like that before. That they knew of. Yeah, that they knew of. That's that's a problem that, that they knew of. See, the problem is you get caught. That's one thing. But right. how long you've been doing this before, you know, you get busted. Right. Normally you know getting mean? caught is not you getting caught the first time. That's it. Yeah. yeah. It's getting no. caught after you've done it for years. I mean, that's brazen. You mm -hmm. go into a house like that, you wear somebody's clothes and you're in there doing that in somebody's house. Yeah. Yeah. Not having any idea when they might come home. Oh yeah. Very. I mean, that's, you know, that takes a certain, uh, certain mindset. Yeah. Sometime after the woman received a call about gross from a social worker who assured her that such behavior was not unusual for a boy that age. Uh, that's a little oh, more shit. than, it's a little more than, sorry, than 15 you know, years old with your hormones going crazy. Yeah. I try to keep the cuss words to a minimum on this show, but that's horse crap. Yeah. I mean, I'm, 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 that, I mean, I'm sorry. When I was 15, I was very much into like girls and sex, but I, Heck yeah. I didn't do any of that stuff. That's no, that's beyond. Yeah. I'm not going to run to the neighbor's house and put on her panties and robe and do all this stuff and go and right. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know, Experts understand those burglaries very differently today. An early history of breaking into homes, stealing, or trying on women's undergarments can be a strong indicator of future violent behavior. Many serial killers cut their teeth committing sexually motivated burglaries, studies show. That is something I have heard. Mm -hmm. A lot of serial killers do have a sexual deviant nature to them. Yeah. Like your Gacy's. Like your BTK's. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, like your um, uh, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah. 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 The young mother sensed the danger. She burned all of the clothing that Gross might have touched. She said, I was terrified at all times. It was very traumatic. She couldn't stand to live in the house anymore and moved out as soon as possible, but Gross still haunted her. Years later, while looking for a new house in South Kansas City, she made an offer on a home on 87th Street only to find out the Gross family had moved in nearby. Oh, Lord. She scrambled to get out of that deal. I would, too. Yeah. Yeah, I'm now out. You're like, nope. Later still, the woman's younger sister would, by coincidence, have her own run-in with Gross. Gross avoided trouble with police for the rest of high school. To those who didn't know about his penchant for burglaries, he projected a picture of normalcy. And he eight, changed his M.O. is what he did. He was, he was one person in public, uh -huh. one person in private. So exactly. Was. And he learned what to do and what not to do to get caught. Exactly. 
An A and B student at Bishop Hogan High School, he played football and routinely stood out as a top salesman in the school's annual World's Finest Chocolate fundraisers. Man, those things are easy to sell. Anybody yeah. can sell those. Yeah. He's walking. Hey, chocolate. Hey, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll take I'll, it. I'll take four. He went off to study engineering at the Missouri University of Science and Technology in Rolla. Rolla. In his junior year, Gross dropped out and got a job as a sheet metal worker back in Kansas City. He would terrorize women here for the next four decades. Among the first to see Gross's capacity for violence was Janet Manuel. Manuel was in nursing school at Research Medical Center when she started dating 22-year-old Gross in the fall of 1973. To Manuel, just out of high school and still living at home with her parents, Gross seemed nice enough. She thought he was, quote-unquote, okay looking <laughs> low standards buddy yeah he bought her little presents she allowed him to take naked photos of her oh never a good thing don't ever do nope. that don't ever do that she met his parents an aggressive mother she recalled and a meek father i guess the only good thing about it back then it was all either polaroids or rolls it wasn't electronic where yeah. you can just like go rampant on the internet true true because but... somebody like him would post shit on the internet yeah I mean. Oh he, oh, he definitely would. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It didn't take long before Gross's rage and paranoia started showing. Soon, Manuel lived in fear of him. Mad with jealousy, Gross repeatedly beat her, pummeling her across her arms and back. Bastard. The abuse turned deadly one night when Gross found Manuel at a nightclub at Country Club Plaza dancing with another man. Gross sat down at a table with Manuel's friends and started pulling out the photos he had taken of her. What a guy. Yep, see? See, he didn't have Facebook, but... Friends table is what, yeah. it, is what it was back there then. There we go. Let's spread these around. Here, yeah. take a look. Mortified, Manuel left the nightclub. Gross followed her across the darkened parking lot into her car, where he pinned her head in his lap, covered her mouth with one hand, and pinched her nostrils shut with the other. She couldn't breathe. Do you know how easy it is for me to kill you? He asked. Manuel thought she was going to die, and she prayed for help. She later said, I don't know how I broke loose from him. I think God helped me out. Gross left, but the nightmare wasn't over. As Manuel drove home, she realized Gross must have sabotaged her car because it suddenly wouldn't go any faster than 10 miles per hour. Huh. When she arrived, when she finally arrived at her parents' house, Gross was there showing her mother the naked photos. This guy's a real piece real of work. Piece, yeah. Real piece of work. Manuel begged her mother not to listen to Gross to make him leave. She pointed to her face where Gross's grip had been so strong it left bruises. After Gross left, Manuel called the police. They told her there was nothing they could do if Gross wasn't at the house at that moment. Oh, please. No, that's just silly, she said. Come on, take a report. You don't understand. This is serious. He tried to close my airway. Gross started calling Manuel's house at all hours of the night until finally the family took the phone off the hook. This is starting to piss me off. Yeah, this guy's a real... I'm glad he's probably already dead because if he wasn't, I... I'd probably go beat the shit out of him. No, I think he's alive. He's, he's in jail right now. Is he? Yeah. Okay. Well, let's not ruin it. <laughs> no, no I, look, it's not ruined. Those, those, I'm just kidding. Yeah, they can, yeah, it's not ruined. No. Um, Manuel's father saw Gross skulking outside the house in the dark. Later, Gross came back to slash the tires on Manuel's car and pour sugar in the gas tank, she told police. <sighs> One night, Manuel's brother kept watch with a gun, but Gross didn't show. The family didn't bother calling the police again, and the nuisance phone calls and car vandalism would become familiar earmarks of Gross's stalking habits in the future. Man, I'd have kneecapped that son of a bitch. So hard. Any woman's pleas for help from police would likely have fallen on deaf ears in those days. In past decades, police often had to witness a misdemeanor to make a case on it. That, and that's stupid. Mm. You know, as long as there's physical evidence now. Right. And, you know, 
that I'm glad that that has changed. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I cannot stand domestic style violence. Oh no, that it's, is it's the lowest form of violence there it's, is. It's hideous. Yeah. Even if Manuel had reported the harassment that followed in the 1970s, it likely wouldn't have been understood as stalking the way it is today. After about seven months, Gross moved on, but like the young mother whose house he burglarized, Manuel kept finding Gross around unexpected corners. Years later, he showed up in the emergency room where Manuel worked as a nurse. She hid from him. When a homicide detective came around with questions about Gross, she told her story down to the smothering hands and slashed tires. Moving out of state, Manuel lost track of it all, but she never forgot. Even decades later, living far away, under her married name, Manuel still knows the fear. She said, this was just the beginning. Manuel, now 65, said on a scorched summer afternoon this year. I guess that's right, because I was born in 67. Yeah. yeah. So I'm only fi- I'll be 53 in like two weeks. Yeah. So. Uh, sitting on her front steps in the mobile home park in Florida. Wow. It just makes you think, who dropped the ball there? Manuel thanks God she survived. Others would not be so lucky. Now we move on to the first killings. Oh, brother. When Robert Gross pulled up in his blue Plymouth Duster at the VIP health studio and massage parlor on Truman Road, again, you sense a pattern here? Yes, I do. Few knew him as a violent creep. That's putting it mildly. Friggin' perv. At 27 years old, Gross stood six feet tall, a well-muscled 180 pounds. He dressed casually, but carefully, trimming his beard close. I'd like to take my, night, you know, my thirty-two-year-old, uh, well-muscled, six-foot-tall, three hundred and twenty-pound ass, and break his one hundred and eighty-pound ass and cross your knee, like, yeah. oh, snap it. Yep. He worked as a sheet metal worker, but seemed more interested in his extracurricular activities. Soon, he would be a suspicious, suspicious, Soon, he would be a suspected killer. Sleeping by day and prowling by night, Gross lurked in adult bookstores and told people he aspired to run a stable of prostitutes. Yep. Total perv. Yep. A loner who told sick jokes about paraplegics, he kept guns handy, and when someone crossed him, liked to get even. The VIP had no storefront. It was a trailer set in some gravel on the side of the road, tucked into a strip of liquor stores and dirty bookshops in what locals call Dog Patch. An unincorporated area between Kansas City and Independence. Man, he he went to the high quality places, huh? He high sure class. Did dude. man. That that place does not earn the title VIP. Let me tell you. Negative. No, it earns more of the title um, STD. Yeah. <laughs> it was the kind of place where two neighbors could have a gunfight in the front yard without getting a visit from the police. That's man, what I'm this talking is about. The Wild West. That's exactly what I was going to talk about. I was just going to say that back in these days. The world, unfortunately, had a much thicker skin, so they put up with a lot more shit than they do now. Yeah. Yeah. My God. Absolutely. By the winter of 1978, Gross had become a regular customer of the VIP, but that didn't make him a valued client. The women there didn't tell police exactly why, but if they had Gross as a customer once, they didn't want him again. Of course not. Despite his reputation, Gross found one VIP employee willing to date him, Wanda Conkling. She was an innocent person, said Kathy Sising, Befriended Conkling around this time. A real sweet little thing. Real cute girl. Conkling, the mother of two young boys, had grown up attending the Shawnee Church of the Nazarene and graduated from Shawnee Mission West High School. She had been a bank teller before finding work in massage parlors. She was temporarily separated from her husband, William Cadwaller, a sometime painting contractor who ran with a crowd of professional shoplifters on the margins of organized crime. With Cadwaller, Conkling endured a tumultuous on-again, off-again relationship punctuated with, by frequent beatings. 
that's just lovely, isn't it? You know, you know, and, and I'm 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 very very old school. These kind of stories they break my heart and they piss me off. Yeah. So it's like you just feel horrible because it gets on your skin. It already happened. Yeah. It happens all the time, and unfortunately, a lot of it's times gonna nobody's going to do anything about it or can't do anything about no. it until it's too late or right. already happens. You exactly. know what I mean? Until it's too late. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. Not again. Not again. Conkling cried as Cadwaller laid into her for what would turn out to be the last time. Ugh. Desperate to get away, Conkling ran straight to Gross. That's going from the kettle or the pan to the fire right there. Yeah. When Willie would knock out my teeth, Bobby or Bobby, Ugh. Bob would pay to fix them, she told a friend. For a while, the pair seemed to supply each other with something essential. Conkling's need to be needed and Gross's demand for control. Yeah, see, what I'm glad of is women are so much stronger these days. Somebody knocks their teeth out. They're going to hit them with a baseball bat. Hopefully, yeah. They're going to get them back, yeah. and then they're going to leave. Yeah. They're not going to go back to these people. Now, at least not as much, I don't think. I'm no expert on the subject, mm-hmm. but I'm thinking that domestic violence isn't as repetitive as it used to be. If it happens a little bit, I think a woman puts up with it maybe once, mm-hmm. thinking maybe he's slipping, but if he's two or three times, I think, most of the time, women are gone now. I wouldn't, well, I can, I wouldn't I think... I can definitely tell you, as the husband of a wife of a social worker, it's actually still very prevalent. Oh, I'm sure it is. Yeah, and women, unfortunately, women are still stuck in bad situations. Uh, some of them do, thankfully, get out. But, uh, yeah, from what I understand, they're still, it's still very prevalent, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. I'll try to keep straying, but, man, this is burning me up. I, know, I bet, man. <laughs> it's all right. Do what you got to do. I mean, I've literally never raised my hand to a woman. My yeah. sister... We used to fight. Uh-huh. That's the only girl I've ever hit in my entire life, and I stopped doing that when I was ten years old. Yeah, siblings. Siblings don't have a sex. They're just they do siblings. that stupid shit. Yeah, yeah. they're they're not but, your sister, not your brother. They're fair targets. Is what they and are. And I have been burning mad at women in my past. Yeah, and I I'm to enough where you'd want to snap their head off, but I <laughs> you never, never raise your hand. You never. don't do it. No, you just don't. It do makes it. you okay. much much lesser of a man. Yeah, I'm yeah. going to shut up now. Go You're ahead. Fine. <laughs> Wanda thought he looked like Burt Reynolds, Zizing said. He was kind of handsome, I guess. Zizing's skepticism turned to alarm when she realized a startling coincidence. Conkling's new boyfriend was the same guy who, as a teenager, had been caught sneaking into her older sister's house on Tracy Avenue a decade before. Hey. She Red ca- flag. Yeah, she I called. Mean, I mean, it's, again, small towns. It's, it, it's still a coincidence, You know though. everybody. Yeah. Yes. She called Conkling to warn her, be careful with Robert Gross. But in early 1979, Conkling and Codwaller reconciled, living together again at their house in a cul-de-sac near Bannister Road and McGee Street. Conkling stopped seeing Gross, but he didn't accept that it was over. He stood over the idea of Conkling rejecting him, and he complained to anyone who would listen. She made me love her, and then she did this to me. Gross kept calling the couple's house. Afraid of what would happen if her husband picked up the phone, Conkling asked friends to tell Gross to stop. Conkling told friends she was getting scared because a car kept pulling into her driveway at night, shining its headlights through her front windows and driving away. On Monday, February 5th, 1979, a friend told Gross to let it go that Conkling and Codwaller were leaving the next day on a second honeymoon. Gross snapped back that he was going over to confront them before they left. They were both never seen alive again. Great. Friends called the house the next day, but no one answered. For the rest of the week, every time a mailman came by, he noticed the front door was left open. 
The family dog, a great dame named Cleo, who usually barked at him, had disappeared. Finally, that Friday, a neighbor called the police. Officers discovered the bloody bodies of husband and wife intertwined on their living room floor, killed execution style with a shotgun. Mm, mm, mm. Codwaller's body showed scattered wounds from 12-gauge pellets in the arm, shoulder, back, and head. Conkling lay with her head on her husband's chest as if she had come to his aid. A shotgun blast had obliterated her face. Okay. Shotgun blast. Small town. Why didn't anybody hear it? Uh, because, again, as we mentioned earlier, this is the type of town where two neighbors can have a gunfight in the front yard. That is true. And nobody called the police. I digress. So there you go. Have it. All right. Someone had come through the front door and killed them just as they prepared to leave on their trip. The couple had plane tickets to California booked for that Tuesday, the day after they were last seen alive. A suitcase, also torn by a shotgun blast, sat by the front door. Now, didn't this crazy SOB tell somebody he was going over there to see them and stop them? He sure did. Witness. Yeah, witnesses, absolutely. Say, hey, he went over there, and now they're dead. You need to question this fool. Exactly. You would think so. Golly. Wanda's friend, Kathy Zising, saw it on the news. She couldn't mistake the couple's house. During the recent Rocky period, Codwaller had painted a large heart on the front of the house with the inscription, Wanda and Will, 1976 to 1979. Sizing went straight to the nearest police station and told Officers Gross was the killer. Oh, I, I stand corrected. There we go. <laughs> Conkling's two sons, ages 7 and 12, lived with their father. He spared them from the details but told them it was Gross who killed their mother and stepfather. For most of their lives, the brothers didn't know much about what happened to their mother or about Gross's other crimes. Only decades later did they learn the rest of the story. Well, uh, why don't we go ahead and take a quick break? I think that's a good place for a break. I need a water break. Let's kind of clear my head, and then we'll, we'll come back. Absolutely. Sounds good. Hi, True Crime fans. I'm Erin. And I'm Shay. We host All Crime, No Cattle, a conversational podcast which focuses on true crime stories from the Lone Star State. We strive to bring you a balanced and well-researched story about Texas cases big and small. We do the research so you don't have to. We also end every episode with a good news story, just to remind everyone that real life isn't quite as depressing as true crime can make it out to be. New episodes drop every Thursday, and you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. All crime, no cattle, because crime is bigger in Texas, y'all. Immediately after finding the bodies, Kansas City Police assigned a special 12-member squad to investigate. 12 members to investigate Robert Gross. It would and be yet, the f- and yet you were saying, and, and yet nothing, and yet nothing exactly. It would be the first of several teams assembled to solve gross-related crimes over the next forty years. This one started at a disadvantage, with about four days passing between the killings and discovery of the crime scene, no eyewitnesses, no useful fingerprints, and no physical clues. The murder weapon, being a shotgun, would make any kind of ballistics evidence more difficult. The shotgun left behind pellets, not a bullet that could be matched to a particular gun. Exactly. And the killer had taken the gun with him. In the late 1970s, it was also well, getting... Well, duh. Well, I mean, he's... You're going to plug somebody, and let's leave the murder weapon right there with the prints the, on it. He's not the smartest person, but he at least had enough sense to do that. I think he's pre, he's a... I think this son of a bitch is very premeditated. Oh, definitely. He pushed the envelope, obviously, but I think everything was premeditated and planned. It was also getting harder to solve murders in Kansas City. By the end of the decade, about three of every ten homicides went unsolved. Jeez! In 1978, the homicide count had jumped to 120, the most in nearly a decade, kicking off a vicious four-year period of fast-paced killing. 
The Conkling and Cadwaller homicides went down as the 7th and 8th of 1979. The year would end with 119. Now, see, that's crazy. Now, that's a 119 is like a weekend in Chicago, mm-hmm. but for a small town, from Missouri in a small town, that a is a ton. That is a lot. Detectives soon learned about the love triangle and Gross's collision course with the newly reunited husband and wife. They surmised that a jealous Gross killed the couple. A doy. You think? Especially when you have somebody who called and said, Gross killed him. Gross killed him. He said he was going over there to confront him. But members of the squad also pursued a competing theory that started with Codwaller as the real target, assassinated by criminal associates who killed his wife to eliminate her as a witness. Oh, Lord. There goes your conspiracy theories, James. Uh, you love them. Police knew Codwaller's was part of a shoplifting ring connected tenuously. Ah, that's true. To the Kansas City mob run by brothers Nick and Carl Civella. Uh-oh. Who were Italians. Italians, who were then at the oh. height of the reputation for gangland hits. Wow. These were wild times in Kansas City. A mob war rocked the city with explosions, bodies left in car trunks, and shotgun murders in restaurants. You know what? That is surprising to me. I never even thought for a minute Kansas City at any point ever had a mob problem. You know, I've never no, heard that I, before. Yeah, you, you don't hear about Missouri or Kansas City having you don't. Maf- mafia at all. No. Crazy. That's pretty cool. Four days after the bodies were found, a police major told the star that the investigation was shifting towards Willie Codwaller as the main target of the killing. Members of the special squad plumbed the depths of Codwaller's underworld connections, plotting through a labyrinth of blind alleys, running down bits of gossip, and searching for reasons why someone might want him dead. They probed... I can think of several. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can too. I mean, then again, how, how tough are you really when, you're, when your uh, crew is, is a crew of shoplifters? Yeah. <laughs> What are you in for? Shoplifting. I stole some gum. <laughs> they probed his standing among the crew of thieves selling stolen merchandise through Tiger's Records, a store on Independence Avenue operated by mob figure Anthony Tiger Carterella. So they would steal from other stores and resell it in their own store. Yeah, it's pretty lucrative in, in um, Strange, Kansas City, but it, huh? Yeah. yeah, and then back then, but then they don't trace records and stuff, so they'd be like, where are you getting all this money and all these... Uh, all this stuff. There's no invoices here for <laughs> any purchases, but yet you're selling all this stuff. They question associates named Blondie Joe, Big John, and Bobby D. <laughs> and they drove to the... That's just how they all sound in my head. When That's I was right. Reading. Yeah. Yo, man. They drove to the federal prison in Leavenworth to interview an inmate who dismissed them with a four-letter word. They flew to Portland, Oregon, where they were told Codwaller feared being murdered at the behest of a fellow crook whose wife he had angered. They then came back and drove all the way across Missouri to find out that story was bunk. Wow, that sucks. They yeah, put, he pissed me off. You go kill that bastard right now. You understand? You're not getting any cannolis with your dinner right, tonight. You, you tell Bobby D and Blondie Joe, I see you, you take them out. That's right. <laughs> that was a terrible, terrible mafia, but whatever. <laughs> That's okay. They put the couple's mailman under hypnosis. Oh, my God. I can't believe I'm reading this sentence. They put the couple's mailman under hypnosis. Oh, Lord. At the same time, detectives came up empty-handed with the Codwaller theory. Members of the homicide squad were still conducting a parallel investigation focused on their first subject, Robert Gross. Police found out how Wanda Conkling met Gross at the VIP massage parlor. The women who worked there told detectives that Gross was weird. Technically company policy forbade Wanda from dating Gross because he was a customer, but the owner made an exception. He knew about the beatings Wanda was taking from her husband. 
Women working in massage parlors had reason to be on edge in 1979. Wanda Conkling was a third to be killed in the area within a year. The previous May, a massage parlor worker had turned up dead in the Missouri River, killed by her boss. In October, in Sedalia, a suspicious fire at massage parlor killed employee Sherilyn Stark. Police investigating Gross talked to his neighbors and started putting together a picture of a dangerous man. Some told of the guns Gross kept at his house, including a 12-gauge shotgun, the same as the gun used in the killings. And that was 79. Mm-hmm. He started his rampages and his escapades in the 67, 68 yeah. years. So he's already gone like 12 so years. 12 years untouched. Untouched. One neighbor described how Gross ranted about hating women and hating his mother. Learning that Gross had a job with a construction company, a couple of detectives interviewed his boss at a work site at the University of Kansas Medical Center. They asked if Gross had been there the week of the killings. The boss said Gross left on Monday, the day Conklin and Codwaller were last seen alive. Gross told his foreman he was taking the rest of the week off to, quote, straighten out family problems, end quote. Gross's parents at first refused to talk. When they changed their mind, Gross's mother said her son was a quote-unquote good boy and wasn't seeing any girls. He came home every Sunday to drop off his laundry, she said. In fact, the detective had just missed him. Gross had not mentioned any of his friends getting killed, and three days after the bodies were found, Gross showed up at a police station with his attorney, who insisted that officers could not ask Gross any questions. Police were allowed to take several Polaroids of Gross and a set of fingerprints before he left and some detectives felt sure Gross was their man. This is the f- most frustrating thing, said retired Kansas City detective Robert Kuhn, a member of the special squad. You know in your heart, in your gut, who the suspect is, but you don't have the evidence to prove it. It makes you feel halfway inadequate. While police became convinced Gross was a killer, a lot of time and manpower had gone down the Codwaller rabbit hole. The police were right to look into both theories, said Charles Welford, a University of Maryland criminologist who reviewed a copy of the case file this year at the request of the stars was 2018. But the whole investigation looks rushed and sloppy, he said. Detectives uncovered promising leads and then didn't follow up. They See, went, that, And that's aggravating as hell. Why? But at the same time, I guess we also understand is that because this is in the time period when they're getting 120 homicides a year, which for New York and Chicago is a slow time, but for some place like this, I'm sure they were completely overwhelmed. Inundated. And at, out, yeah. you know, they, they were um, understaffed, not enough manpower, and they were just, yeah, inundated and overwhelmed. So, yeah. Jeez. Mistakes happen, you know, yeah. when, that, when that happens. They went too fast and gave up too soon. I figured they knew who did it, but they couldn't prove it, Walford said. They didn't have enough and lost interest. Meanwhile, Gross walked the streets of Kansas City, and as police learned from one neighbor... There was a lot more going on with him than just a double homicide. I'm glad technology is advanced, though. In a lot of ways, I'm glad technology is advanced yeah. uh, because of the fact that it makes it easier to prove people like this. DNA evidence, things like that. They probably were not used so much in the 60s and 70s. I, a matter there of might fact, have been a little bit, but it was probably very faulty. No, it wasn't. tried it. Because I remember this from the O.J. Simpson trial. That was the very first time DNA evidence had been used in a criminal case. Yeah. Because even then... It was still in its infancy, so much so that they weren't able to use it to convince the jury that he was yeah, guilty. Because it was unreliable. And and the jury I remember that. The jury didn't know anything about it, so it was all over their heads. Yeah. Yeah. So that yeah. So in the sixties and seventies it was never used. Yeah. In the first week of the Conklin Codwaller investigation, police knocked on the front door of Gross's neighbor across the street, Deanna Kaywood. 
Haywood assumed the detectives had come to talk to her about the woman Gross beat with a tire iron. Jesus. God almighty. Two years earlier, 1977, Gross had picked up a sex worker on the street and savagely attacked her when she didn't do what he wanted. He told police he was robbed and no one was arrested. She no. took my 20 bucks and didn't do what I said. <laughs> so she, I, she stole from me. No, the detective said. They were here about the married couple that got shot to death. Kaywood and Gross were about the same age, in their late 20s, and he offered wandered over to her house to play with her kids. He had even taken her three-year-old son to the zoo. Some people in the neighborhood were leery of Gross. He had that effect on people. But with Kaywood's motorcycle-riding husband and his tough friends hanging around, Gross stayed on his best behavior. A few days before the homicides, Gross came over to return an electric heater he had borrowed and out of nowhere started telling Kaywood about a married woman he was dating. Gross complained that the woman was going back to her husband. Gross said he was in love with her and couldn't understand why she was leaving him for a man who beat her all the time. Not long after her visit with the police, Kaywood started having trouble with Gross. Just like everything else, they could never prove it. We know he did it. Everybody around there knew he'd done it. Soon, she would have her own story to tell, one that painted Gross as a violent man willing to go to extraordinary lengths to take revenge for the smallest perceived slight. He stormed into her house one day and assaulted a friend of hers who was laying down in the guest room. Kaywood found Gross gripping the woman by her shoulders and shaking her like a rag doll. The hell's wrong with this guy? I mean, really, this dude is seriously Mm -hmm. off a rocker. There is a huge mental uh, chemical imbalance in his brain. How... how a yutz like this is allowed to just run free for so long and has obviously put his hands on people, has assaulted mm-hmm. people left yeah. and right, and even murdered, and it's obvious. Yeah, he's... Just, uh, again, today, with, with people with cameras everywhere and cell phones, he wouldn't get away with it. He would much. not get away no. with it. No, somebody put a bullet in his head. Pro- probably, yeah. I'd have shot him. Kay would order Gross out of the house saying, you get out of here. I don't know what's wrong with you, she shouted at him. Later, Kaywood's husband went over to Gross's house to straighten things out. Kaywood suspects the humiliation left Gross wanting to get even. Not long after, the Kaywoods were camping at Truman Lake. Sound asleep in the middle of the night, they woke to a police officer smacking the side of their tent. <laughs> Jeez. Hey. <laughs> Your house is on fire. I suggest you go home, he told them. Oh, jeez. Kaywood and her husbands left their kids with friends and jumped on their Harley, riding home at dawn. The fire department was still at the scene. Gross stood in his front yard, watching. They never spoke again. Nothing remained of the house but the frame. The curtains melted off the walls, and Kaywood always thought Gross did it. The family rebuilt the house and stayed for a while, but Kaywood sometimes thought Gross was stalking her. At home at night, she heard footsteps in the snow outside her windows and found footprints in the morning. Her husband gave her a gun and told her to shoot if Gross came around again. Good! But she never caught him on the property, and after she moved away, she never saw him again. Others found, to their dismay, that Gross kept coming back. Years after the killing, Kathy Sizing got a job at the VIP massage parlor where her friend Wanda Conkling had worked. One day, in the early 1980s, who should saunter through the door but Robert Gross? Sizing couldn't believe that he had the nerve to show his face. Everyone knew he killed Wanda. Yet Gross still hung around, and he had been spotted in the parking lot, writing down license plate numbers of the women who worked there. The owner had tacked Gross's name and picture on by the front desk with a number to call if he ever came in again. 
Now that he, yeah, I was going to say, they can do a trespassing thing against this oh, yeah. guy. And Restraining orders existed in these times. They should have done it the very first after the first incident. Yeah. Now that he was there, Zizing fled into a rear room out of sight. After a few seconds, Gross let himself out, leaving nothing behind but the tinkling of the bell hanging over the front door. Zizing didn't see him again or hear much from him for decades. Then, a few years ago, she got a call from Conkling's son, Jason. Jason had grown up. He's 47 now, and his brother, Richard Jr., is a 51-year-old grandfather in Shawnee. The brothers wanted to know what happened to their mother. Zizing told Jason what she knew about the VIP, about Wanda and Willie, about Gross. The brothers visited police headquarters, where detectives let them see the homicide file, a three-inch folder of reports, crime scene diagrams, and graphic photos. It brought to life in vivid detail a childhood they only faintly remembered. Gross seemed to be the obvious suspect. Jason asked police if they could investigate the case again. Sergeant Ben Caldwell of the Kansas City Police Department's Missing Persons and Cold Case Squad agreed to look at the file, but he didn't make any promises. As far as I know, it is nothing. There are no new developments on it, and I can't speak to the investigation, he said. Still, Jason hoped his mother's killings might finally be solved. He wasn't alone. Just down the road in Mission was another family who had similar questions about the unsolved case of Cheryl Morris, a 31-year-old part-time waitress and college student who disappeared in 1981. That investigation also led straight to the door of Robert J. Gross. Once again. Once again. I am... Lord have mercy, I am telling you, if our listeners don't hate this guy as much as I do, <laughs> I would be surprised. Just wait till part two. Yeah. Cheryl Morris had no way of knowing who she was dealing with when she met Robert Gross. Had grown up in the 1950s, riding her horse, Maria, on the family farm in Belton and winning ribbons at the American Royal. In high school at Shawnee Mission North, she played bass guitar in an all-girl rock band called the Casey Kittens. When she scored tickets to see singer Gino Vanelli at the Uptown Theater, Morris brought along her little cousin Debbie and talked her way backstage to meet the band. To Debbie, Morris was the cool older cousin. Everyone seemed attracted to her confidence, zest for life, and 1970s hippie style. Morris, 31, stayed close to her family while she was going to college part-time in Kansas City. She took classes in Longview Community College and waited tables at Patrico's Mexican Restaurant at 99th Street and Holmes Road. And that is where Gross found her in 1981. Gross, then 30, had been hanging around Patrico's for years. It was one of the oldest Mexican restaurants in the city, and his mother had worked there as a waitress, just like Morris. Man, now I want Mexican food. Yes. <laughs> Morris and Gross went out a couple times, but she rejected him because of his sexual advances. She said it was weird. After that, Morris started having car trouble, which a mechanic diagnosed as sugar in the gas tank. Oh, God, here he goes again. Just as happened to Gross's former girlfriend, Janet Manuel. Mm-hmm. The harassment followed a stalking playbook that would become clear to investigators later. Someone cut the wires to the headlights and taillights of Morris's car. One night in the Patricos parking lot, she found the tires slash. Gross kept calling Morris at home and at work, and her fear of him is the last thing relatives remember her talking about. They said, quote, he wouldn't take no for an answer, said cousin Patrick Cook. She was scared of him. When Morris again refused to go out with Gross, he exploded. You don't have to worry anymore because you will not see him or anyone else again. At about okay. nine. Okay. Uh, another red flag. It's a threat. And if people know this and hear this uh-huh. and they're not. Mo- Ugh. Yeah. How stupid 
are these people? You know, it's again, the 80s is still, I want to call it still a sort of innocent time, you know? Yep. Sort of, maybe, but not really. But it's a small town still. Yeah, I need to quit acting like I'm so surprised that there are people like <laughs> this in the country. You're going to be surprised the entire episodes. Yeah. This... <laughs> at about 9.30 p.m. on November 4th, 1981, Morris finished her shift at Patrico's and called a friend from school to say she'd come over to study for an exam. Then she walked out the door and vanished. Morris's family, immediately sensing something wrong, reported her missing. Kansas City police found Morris's car outside her school friend's apartment, but the friend hadn't seen her. A dozen co-workers from the restaurant searched the surrounding woods and stream beds, and four days after Morris disappeared, her mother asked police if Gross's name had come up in the investigation. It hadn't, but they recognized Gross's name and made the connection to the killing of Wanda Conkling and William Caldwaller two years earlier. The house where the couple died was less than a half mile from the restaurant. Standing at the door to his home, Gross told police he knew Morris, but he denied they had dated. A detective noted that Gross was uncooperative and wouldn't let him inside. Confronted with the possibility that Robert J. Gross was now responsible for three deaths, police redoubled their efforts. Search warrant, assholes. It's the same kind of MO we saw, said Kansas City Police Detective Gary Jenkins, now retired, who drew an assignment to a unit dedicated to investigating Gross. Here's two of these that he did, and he's going to do it again. He's a serial killer. When Cheryl Morris disappeared, they said, look, let's go. We've got to get this guy. This was the second time police assembled a special team to catch Gross. They put Gross under surveillance day and night for months, and it wasn't easy. The detectives quickly figured out that Gross was intelligent, paranoid, and knew police were following him. He constantly checked behind him for tails, checked his car for radio transponders, and abruptly doubled back in traffic to lose his pursuers. The surveillance team worked in shifts, using different cars, and deployed a motorcycle to speed behind Gross when he drove erratically. They would have used a helicopter if they could have gotten one. This was before GPS tracking, Jenkins said. He was hard to follow. He was pretty watchful. It was hard to find a pattern on him because he didn't work. He didn't keep a regular schedule. Even examining Gross's garbage for clues wasn't simple. He made a point of carrying his trash bags out to the truck himself, so please disguise themselves as garbage workers but it didn't lead to any breaks in the case. Yeah, now, I'm going to tell you what. I'm Now, at least they're trying. They're definitely now, trying. Now, when you're going undercover as a garbage in. man and stuff to yeah. grab his trash to see if you can... I'm gonna you're, put, you're putting that, effort in. At least they're doing some effort now. At least now it sounds like they're trying to bust this asshole. Yeah. They even watched as Gross cavalierly shoplifted from big box stores to supplement his income, the source of which was unclear since it appeared to police that he didn't have a job. They didn't arrest him for stealing. They were looking to bust him for murder, though. We expended a ton of effort trying to stay after this guy. It's just tough, Jenkins said. Morris was presumed dead, but without a body, it would be hard to make a murder case. It can be done. Johnson County would prove that in 1990 when a jury convicted serial killer Richard Grissom, even though his three victims were never found. But it is unusual. The Morris case went cold, and she remained listed as a missing person for years. Gross's attorney argued that she was still alive somewhere, possibly in California. Her family had to live with the uncertainty. For her mother, Alice Eaton, that meant torture every time the phone rang or she heard a knock at the door. Many times, she answered the door for a police detective holding a scrap of women's clothing from who knows where, asking, does this look familiar? It never did. Sometimes when Eaton went to the mall, she would see a young woman ahead of her, about the same size and with the same blonde hair as Morris, and she would imagine it could be her but it never was. The family could not understand why police didn't arrest Gross. 
a lingering anger became part of their life from then on. They agreed with the police about one thing. Gross wouldn't stop. Yeah, I feel bad for these folks. I mean, they had to live with this for God knows years probably. I've known about this guy for, what, an hour? Yeah, about an hour, yeah. And I hate his guts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In 1983, two years after Morris disappeared, a former high school girlfriend of Gross's turned up dead in her backyard swimming pool. Teresa Barnes had drowned. It was ruled an accident by the medical examiner, but when Gross's name surfaced in the investigation, detectives' ears perked up. Oh, really? They took notice of any women connected to Gross who ended up dead, which happened more than once in the 1980s. Duh! But Barnes and Gross knew each other from Bishop Hogan High School. When she died, Barnes was 30 years old, married with three children in Kansas City. She and her husband had gone out to dinner. When they came home, he went to bed while she stayed up to do paperwork and take a late-night dip. The husband found her body floating in the pool about 3 a.m. The death wasn't investigated as a homicide, but when detectives sussed out a connection to Gross, they drove out to the house to talk to Barnes' husband. The husband was surprised at the detective's questions. He didn't suspect foul play. He told them that, as far as he knew, his wife hadn't heard from Gross in many years. The one thing she ever said about Gross was that he had once set her closet on fire in a fit of anger. Still, the detectives wondered. About yes, s- I guess she wouldn't let him wear his dresses or something. <laughs> Good or, point. Good or, point, you know, yeah. She, I want to wear did. your dress. No, you sick bastard. Get out of here. <sighs> Torch. Still, the detectives wondered. About six months after Barnes died, they received an anonymous tip that she had written a letter to someone in Texas saying Gross had come back into her life. They never found the letter, though. Police were also taking another look at the death of Gross's aunt three years earlier. Juanita Lovich, 63, was last seen alive on July 21, 1980, doing yard work at her Kansas City home. She told a neighbor she didn't feel well and went inside. Two days passed before her body was found floating in her bathtub. Small amounts of blood remained in the bedroom, on some clothing, and on the bathroom floor. When the deputy coroner had her body removed from the tub, he found a small knife underneath her. An autopsy found no obvious stab wounds, however, and the coroner listed the death as occurring from natural causes, most likely heat exhaustion. What? There's a knife in the tub, but, it's but no exhaustion. stab wounds. It's heat exhaustion, yeah. And she, you know, she took a knife in there to cut some lemons up for her bath. I don't uh, know. But detectives took a greater interest when they discovered that Gross collected a hefty sum from Lovich's life insurance. The Wyandotte County Coroner's Office told the Star this summer that Lovich's death had been reclassified as a homicide and her case remains unsolved. For the first time since he was 15, Gross was arrested in 1983 and then arrested again. In one case, police accused him of stalking a woman into a laundromat on Warnall Road and groping her. In the other incident, prosecutors charged Gross with indecent conduct. In both cases, prosecutors dropped the charges when the victims didn't show up in court. Other complaints similarly went nowhere. One woman said Gross stole her underwear and a swimsuit in burglary, returning the swimsuit top with a nipple area cut away. Police also suspected that Gross was the man who followed a woman into a grocery store to give her a flower shortly before she received a series of threatening phone calls and someone broke into her house. And on it went. Women across the city ran the risk of crossing paths with Gross and had no warning of the danger. Who would be his next victim? Seemingly unable to stop him, police reached out to experts just to try to understand what kind of serial killer they were dealing with. The 1980s was probably the FBI's um, task force they had. <laughs> yeah. In 1984, three years after Morris disappeared, police commissioned a psychological profile of Gross from Richard Dunlop, a local specialist in neuropsychological testing. 
Dunlop summarized his conclusion as such. We can assume antisocial personality disorder together with compulsive traits, avoidance, borderline sadism, and marginally paranoid thinking and behavior. Today, psychologists suggest two possibilities. Gross's crimes may have been driven by a condition called borderline personality disorder, or he could have been a psychopath, possibly both. Borderline personality disorder would explain how quick Gross is to create intense but unstable personal relationships. It's called the Jekyll and Hyde scenario. A man seems nice during the honeymoon phase of a relationship. Then the woman notices he's a little clingy, jealous, and possessive. She distances herself, maybe breaks things off. That's when he attacks, with fists, a tire iron, or a shotgun, whatever is at hand. Bipolar, perhaps? Yeah, well, that's that's what the borderline is. Yeah, I guess uh, so, yeah. yeah. If he's a psychopath, he doesn't really care about the women. He, he cares about being disrespected by anybody, and he'll kill to punish him for it. Oh, great. I'm going to go disrespect this guy and dare him. <laughs> I'm going to go talk about his mother and tell him to bring it on. This modern analysis wasn't available to police in the 1980s, even as they recognized a clear pattern of behavior. The burglaries, abusive relationships, harassing phone calls, car vandalism, and stalking. Most serial killers are caught within five years. Gross was not. But as his obsessive persecution of women continued, he did slip up in spectacular fashion. And, and I that cannot wait. is where we will pick up next week. Part two. That's Part right. Two. I cannot wait to hear how they brought this bastard down. Yeah. It's I, one of those things I, where it's one of those like those characters on TV or in movies where they're so despicable, but they they're so untouchable that you know in the end their comeuppance is coming and it's gonna be so sweet. It's like me in seventy seven when Darth Vader collided with that other TIE fighter and spun off into space and got away. Yeah. I was pissed. You were, <laughs> you were pissed. I was pissed. <laughs> yeah. I was like, damn it. <laughs> I spent my 50 cents. I wanted to see that. What is he? No. I wanted to see Darth Vader get killed. All right, buddy. Well, why don't you tell the fine folks at home once again where they can find us? I will I will be glad to, sir. You can find us on the fourthhand.com network along with our sister project, What the Suck, as well as several other fine shows. Good people. Give them a listen. Give them a shout out. Give them a review. Help them out. Uh, you can also find us on the Big Evil Facebook. You can find us on Instagram, and we are now, like I said, on Twitter. Yes. Uh, quite extensively, actually. Our Twitter account's blowing up. Hit us up. <laughs> send us a comment. Send us some anything, suggestions Please. for stories, anything. Send it to us. We want to hear from you. We love you guys. So, uh, yeah, send us some reviews. Send us some ratings. That's right. Also, if you have any personal stories, uh, this is something we're trying to integrate. We've had some episodes where we've had some. Uh, few, but yeah. we've missed out on a few. Yeah. Uh, but we'd like to have a personal encounter on every episode if possible. All right, James. Well, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I need a shower, and then I'm ready to head on to the next part. Yeah, I need to go dunk my head in a tub of ice water. So <laughs> let's head on down the road, man, and we'll see you for part two. All right, guys. We'll see you all next week. <laughs>